while he was on earth. Acts 10.38 The apostles and all the disciples in Bible times were always striving to walk in his steps. A Christian who was content to go to heaven himself and cared not what became of others, whether they lived happy and died in peace or not, would have been regarded as a kind of monster in primitive times who had not the spirit of Christ. Why should we suppose for a moment that a lower standard will suffice in the present day? Why should fig trees which bear no fruit be spared in the present day, when in our Lord's time they were to be cut down as cumberers of the ground? Luke 13.7 These are serious inquiries and demand serious answers. There is a generation of professing Christians nowadays who seem to know nothing of caring for their neighbors and are wholly swallowed up in the concerns of number one, that is, their own and their families. They eat and drink and sleep and dress and work and get money and spend money year after year and whether others are happy or miserable, well or ill, converted or unconverted, traveling toward heaven or toward hell, appear to be questions about which they are supremely indifferent. Can this be right? Can it be reconciled with the religion of him who spoke the parable of the Good Samaritan and bade us go and do likewise? Luke 10.37 I doubt it altogether. There is much to be done on every side. There is not a place in England where there is not a field for work and an open door for being useful if anyone is willing to enter it. There is not a Christian in England who cannot find some good work to do for others if he has only a heart to do it. The poorest man or woman without a single penny to give can always show his deep sympathy to the sick and sorrowful and by simple good nature and tender helpfulness can lessen the misery and increase the comfort of somebody in this troubled world. But alas, the vast majority of professing Christians, whether rich or poor, churchmen or dissenters, seem possessed with a devil of detestable selfishness and know not the luxury of doing good. They can argue by the hour about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the forms of worship and the union of church and state and such light, dry-boned questions. But all this time they seem to care nothing for their neighbors. The plain practical point whether they loved their neighbor as the Samaritan loved the traveler in the parable and can spare any time and trouble to do him good is a point they never touch with one of their fingers. In too many English parishes, both in town and country, true love seems almost dead, both in church and chapel, and wretched party spirit and controversy are the only fruits that Christianity appears able to produce. In a day like this, 
No reader should wonder if I press this plain old subject on his conscience. Do we know anything of genuine Samaritan love to others? Do we ever try to do any good to anyone beside our own friends and relatives and our own party or cause? Are we living like disciples of him who always went about doing good and commanded his disciples to take him for their example? John 13.15 If not, with what face shall we meet him in the judgment day? In this matter also, how is it with our souls? Once more I ask, how do we do? 9. Let me ask in the ninth place whether we know anything of living the life of habitual communion with Christ. By communion, I mean that habit of abiding in Christ which our Lord speaks of in the fifteenth chapter of St. John's Gospel as essential to Christian fruitfulness. John 15, 4-8 Let it be distinctly understood that union with Christ is one thing and communion is another. There can be no communion with the Lord Jesus without union first, but unhappily there may be union with the Lord Jesus and afterwards little or no communion at all. The difference between the two things is not the difference between two distinct steps, but the difference between the higher and lower ends of an inclined plane. Union is the common privilege of all who feel their sins and truly repent and come to Christ by faith and are accepted, forgiven and justified in Him. Too many believers, it may be feared, never get beyond this stage, partly from ignorance, partly from laziness, partly from fear of man, partly from secret love of the world, partly from some unmortified besetting sin. They are content with a little faith and a little hope and a little peace and a little measure of holiness, and they live on all their lives in this condition, doubting, weak, halting, and bearing fruit only thirtyfold to the very end of their days. Communion with Christ is the privilege of those who are continually striving to grow in grace and faith and knowledge and conformity to the mind of Christ in all things, who do not look to the things behind and count not themselves to have attained, but press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14 Union is the bud, but communion is the flower. Union is the babe, but communion is the strong man. He that has union with Christ does well. But he that enjoys communion with him does far better. Both have one life, one hope, one heavenly seed in their hearts, one Lord, one Savior, one Holy Spirit, one eternal home. But union is not so good as communion. 
the grand secret of communion with Christ is to be continually living the life of faith in Him and drawing out of Him every hour the supply that every hour requires. To me, says St. Paul, to live is Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Galatians 2.20, Philippians 1, verse 21. Communion like this is the secret of the abiding joy and peace in believing which eminent saints like Bradford and Rutherford notoriously possessed. None were ever more humbled or more deeply convinced of their own infirmities and corruptions they would have told you that the seventh chapter of Romans precisely described their own experience. They would have endorsed every word of the confession put into the mouths of true believers in our prayer book communion service. They would have said continually, The remembrance of our sins is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. But they were ever looking unto Jesus, and in Him they were ever able to rejoice. Communion like this is the secret of the splendid victories which such men as these won over sin, the world, and the fear of death. They did not sit still idly saying, I leave it all to Christ to do for me. But strong in the Lord, they used the divine nature he had implanted in them boldly and confidently and were more than conquerors through him that loved them. Romans 8.37 Like St. Paul, they would have said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 Ignorance of this life of communion is one among many reasons why so many in this age are hankering after the confessional and strange views of the real presence in the Lord's Supper. Such errors often spring from imperfect knowledge of Christ and obscure views of the life of faith in a risen, living, and interceding Savior. Is communion with Christ like this a common thing? Alas, it is very rare indeed. The greater part of believers seem content with the barest elementary knowledge of justification by faith and a half dozen other doctrines and go doubting, limping, halting, groaning along the way to heaven and experience little either of the sense of victory or joy. The churches of these latter days are full of weak, powerless and uninfluential believers, saved at last, but so as by fire, but never shaking the world and knowing nothing of an abundant entrance. 1 Corinthians 3.15, 2 Peter 1, verse 11. Despondency and feeble mind and much afraid in pilgrim's progress reached the celestial city as really and truly as valiant for the truth and great heart. But they certainly did not reach it with the same comfort and did not do a tenth part of the same good in the world. I fear there are many like them in these days. 
When things are so in the churches, no reader can wonder that I inquire how it is with our souls. Once more I ask, in the matter of communion with Christ, how do we do? Ten, let me ask in the tenth and last place whether we know anything of being ready for Christ's second coming. That he will come again the second time is as certain as anything in the Bible. The world has not yet seen the last of him. As surely as he went up visibly and in the body on the Mount of Olives before the eyes of his disciples, so surely will he come again in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Acts 1.11 He will come to raise the dead, to change the living, to reward his saints, to punish the wicked, to renew the earth and take the curse away, to purify the world even as he purified the temple, and to set up a kingdom where sin shall have no place and holiness shall be the universal rule. The creeds which we repeat and profess to believe continually declare that Christ is coming again. The ancient Christians made it a part of their religion to look for his return. Backward, they looked to the cross and the atonement for sin and rejoiced in Christ crucified. Upward, they looked to Christ at the right hand of God and rejoiced in Christ interceding. Forward, they looked to the promised return of their Master and rejoiced in the thought that they would see him again, and we ought to do the same. What have we really got from Christ, and what do we know of him, and what do we think of him? Are we living as if we long to see him again and love his appearing? Readiness for that appearing is nothing more than being a real, consistent Christian, it requires no man to cease from his daily business. The farmer need not give up his farm, nor the shopkeeper his counter, nor the doctor his patience, nor the carpenter his hammer and nails, nor the bricklayer his mortar and trowel, nor the blacksmith his smithy. Each and all cannot do better than be found doing his duty, but doing it as a Christian and with a heart packed up and ready to be gone. In the face of truth like this, no reader can feel surprised if I ask, how is it with our souls in the matter of Christ's second coming? The world is growing old and running to seed. The vast majority of Christians seem like men in the time of Noah and Lot who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, planting and building, up to the very day when the flood and fire came. Those words of our Master are very solemn and heart-searching. Remember Lot's wife? Take heed, lest at any time your heart be overcharged with the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares. Luke 17.32 
2134. Once more I ask, in the matter of readiness for Christ's second coming, how do we do? I end my inquiries here. I might easily add to them, but I trust I have said enough at the beginning of this volume to stir up self-inquiry and self-examination in many minds. God is my witness that I have said nothing that I do not feel of paramount importance to my own soul. I only want to do good to others. Let me now conclude all with a few words of practical application. A. Is any reader of this paper asleep and utterly thoughtless about religion? Oh, awake and sleep no more. Look at the churchyards and cemeteries. One by one, the people around you are dropping into them and you must lie there one day. Look forward to a world to come and lay your hand on your heart and say, if you dare, that you are fit to die and meet God. Ah, you are like one sleeping in a boat, drifting down the stream toward the falls of Niagara. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Jonah 1, verse 6, Ephesians 5, 14. B. Is any reader of this paper feeling self-condemned and afraid that there is no hope for his soul? Cast aside your fears and accept the offer of our Lord Jesus Christ to sinners. Hear him saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. John 7.37 Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 Doubt not that these words are for you as well as for anyone else. Bring all your sins and unbelief and sense of guilt and unfitness and doubts and infirmities. Bring all to Christ. This man receiveth sinners, and he will receive you. Luke 15.2 Do not stand still, halting between two opinions and waiting for a convenient season. Arise, he calleth thee. Come to Christ this very day. Mark 10.49 See, is any reader of this paper a professing believer in Christ, but a believer without much joy and peace and comfort? Take advice this day. Search your own heart and see whether the fault be not entirely your own. Very likely you are sitting at ease, content with a little faith and a little repentance, a little grace and a little sanctification, and unconsciously shrinking back from extremes. You will never be a very happy Christian at this rate if you live to the age of Methuselah. Change your plan if you love life and would see good days without delay. Come out boldly and act decidedly. 
Be thorough, thorough, very thorough in your Christianity and set your face fully towards the sun. Lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset you. Strive to get nearer to Christ, to abide in Him, to cleave to Him, and to sit at His feet like Mary and drink full draughts out of the fountain of life. These things, says St. John, we write unto you that your joy may be full. First John 1 verse 4 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. First John 1 verse 7 D. Is any reader of this paper a believer oppressed with doubts and fears on account of his feebleness, infirmity, and sense of sin? Remember the text that says of Jesus, A bruised reed will he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. Matthew 12.20 Take comfort in the thought that this text is for you. What, though your faith be feeble? It is better than no faith at all. The least grain of life is better than death. Perhaps you are expecting too much in this world. Earth is not heaven. You are yet in the body. Expect little from self, but much from Christ. Look more to Jesus and less to self. E. Finally, is any reader of this paper sometimes downcast by the trials he meets with in the way to heaven? Bodily trials, family trials, trials of circumstances, trials from neighbors and trials from the world. Look up to a sympathizing Savior at God's right hand and pour out your heart before Him. He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities for he suffered himself being tempted. Are you alone? So was he. Are you misrepresented and calumniated? So was he. Are you forsaken by friends? So was he. Are you persecuted? So was he. Are you wearied in body and grieved in spirit? So was he. Yes. He can feel for you, and He can help as well as feel. Then learn to draw nearer to Christ. The time is short. Yet a little time, and all will be over. We shall soon be with the Lord. There is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Proverbs 23:18. Ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Hebrews 10, verses 36 and 37. Chapter 2 Self-Exertion Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Luke 13.24 There was once a man who asked our Lord Jesus Christ a very deep question. He said to him, Lord, 
Are there few that be saved? Who this man was, we do not know. What his motive was for asking this question, we are not told. Perhaps he wished to gratify an idle curiosity. Perhaps he wanted an excuse for not seeking salvation himself. The Holy Ghost has kept back all this from us. The name and motive of the inquirer are both hidden. But one thing is very clear, and that is the vast importance of the saying of our Lord to which the question gave rise. Jesus seized the opportunity to direct the minds of all around him to their own plain duty. He knew the train of thought which the man's inquiry had set moving in their hearts. He saw what was going on within them. Strive, he cries, to enter in at the straight gate. Whether there be few saved or many, your course is clear. Strive to enter in. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. A day shall come when many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Strive to enter in now. I desire to call the serious attention of all who read this paper to the solemn lessons which this saying of the Lord Jesus is meant to teach. It is one which deserves special remembrance in the present day. It teaches unmistakably that mighty truth, our own personal responsibility for the salvation of our souls. It shows the immense danger of putting off the great business of religion, as so many unhappily do. On both these points, the witness of our Lord Jesus Christ in the text is clear. He who is the eternal God, and who spoke the words of perfect wisdom, says to the sons of men, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. One, here is a description of the way of salvation. Jesus calls it the straight gate. Two, here is a plain command. Jesus says, strive to enter in. Three, here is an awful prophecy. Jesus says, Many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. May the Holy Ghost apply the subject to the hearts of all into whose hands this paper may fall. May all who read it know the way of salvation experimentally, obey the command of the Lord practically, and be found safe in the great day of His second coming. 1. Here is a description of the way of salvation, Jesus calls it, the straight gate. There is a gate which leads to pardon, peace with God, and heaven. Whosoever goes in by that gate shall be saved. Never surely was a gate more needed. Sin is a vast mountain between man and God. How shall man climb over it? Sin is a high wall between man and God. How shall man get through it? 
sin is a deep gulf between man and God. How shall a man climb over it? God is in heaven, holy, pure, spiritual, undefiled, light, without any darkness at all. A being who cannot bear that which is evil or look upon iniquity. Man is a poor fallen worm crawling on the earth for a few years, sinful, corrupt, erring, defective, a being whose imagination is only evil and whose heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How shall man and God be brought together? How shall man ever draw near his Maker without fear and shame? Blessed be God, there is a way, there is a road, there is a path, there is a door. It is the gate spoken of in the words of Christ, the straight gate. This gate was made for sinners by the Lord Jesus Christ. From all eternity he covenanted and engaged that he would make it. In the fullness of time he came into the world and made it by his own atoning death on the cross. By that death he made satisfaction for man's sin, paid man's debt to God and bore man's punishment. He built a great gate at the cost of his own body and blood. He reared a ladder on earth whose top reached to heaven. He made a door by which the chief of sinners may enter into the holy presence of God and not be afraid. He opened a road by which the vilest of men, believing in him, may draw near to God and have peace. He cries to us, I am the door, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. John 10, verse 9. I am the way, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. By him, says Paul, we have boldness and access with confidence. Ephesians 3, 12. Thus was the gate of salvation formed. This gate is called the straight gate, and it is not called so without cause. It is always straight, narrow, and difficult to pass through to some persons, and it will be so as long as the world stands. It is narrow to all who love sin and are determined not to part with it. It is narrow to all who set their affections on this world and Seek first its pleasures and rewards. It is narrow to all who dislike trouble and are unwilling to take pains and make sacrifices for their souls. It is narrow to all who like company and want to keep in with the crowd. It is narrow to all who are self-righteous and think they are good people and deserve to be saved. To all such the great gate which Christ made is narrow and straight. In vain they seek to pass through. The gate will not admit them. God is not unwilling to receive them. Their sins are not too many to be forgiven, but they are not willing to be saved in God's way. Thousands for the last 18 centuries 
have tried to make the gateway wider. Thousands have worked and toiled to get to heaven on lower terms. But the gate never alters. It is not elastic. It will not stretch to accommodate one man more than another. It is still the straight gate. Straight as this gate is, it is the only one by which men can get to heaven. There is no side door. There is no bypass. There is no gap or low place in the wall. All that are ever saved will be saved only by Christ and only by simple faith in Him. Not one will be saved by repentance. Today's sorrow does not wipe off yesterday's score. Not one will be saved by his own works. The best works that any man can do are little better than splendid sins. Not one will be saved by his former regularity in the use of the outward means of grace. When we have done all, we are poor, unprofitable servants. Oh, no, it is mere waste of time to seek any other road to eternal life. Men may look right and left and weary themselves with their own devices, but they will never find another door. Proud men may dislike the gate, if they will. Profligate men may scoff at it and make a jest of those who use it. Lazy men may complain that the way is hard, but men will discover no other salvation than that of faith in the blood and righteousness of a crucified Redeemer. There stands between us and heaven one great gate. It may be straight, but it is the only one. We must either enter heaven by the straight gate or not at all. Straight as this gate is, it is a gate ever ready to open. No sinners of any kind are forbidden to draw near. Whosoever will may enter in and be saved. There is but one condition of admission. That condition is that you really feel your sins and desire to be saved by Christ in His own way. Art thou really sensible of thy guilt and vileness? Hast thou a truly broken and contrite heart? Behold the gate of salvation and come in. He that made it declares, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 The question to be considered is not whether you are a great sinner or a little sinner, whether you are elect or not, whether you are converted or not. The question is simply this, Do you feel your sins? Do you feel laboring and heavy laden? Are you willing to put your soul into Christ's hand? Then if that be the case, the gate will open to you at once. Come in this very day. Wherefore standest thou without? Genesis 24.31 Straight as this gate is, it is one through which thousands have gone in and been saved. No sinner was ever turned back and told he was too bad to be admitted.
if he came really sick of his sins. Thousands of all sorts have been received, cleansed, washed, pardoned, clothed, and made heirs of eternal life. Some of them seemed very unlikely to be admitted. You and I have thought they were too bad to be saved. But he that built the gate did not refuse them. As soon as they knocked, he gave orders that they should be let in. Manasseh, king of Judah, went up to this gate. None could have been worse than he. He had despised his good father Hezekiah's example and advice. He had bowed down to idols. He had filled Jerusalem with bloodshed and cruelty. He had slain his own children. But as soon as his eyes were opened to his sins, and he fled to the gate for pardon, the gate flew wide open, and he was saved. Saul, the Pharisee, went up to this gate. He had been a great offender. He had been a blasphemer of Christ and a persecutor of Christ's people. He had labored hard to stop the progress of the gospel. But as soon as his heart was touched and he found out his own guilt and fled to the gate for pardon, at once the gate flew wide open and he was saved. Many of the Jews who crucified our Lord went up to this gate. They had been grievous sinners indeed. They had refused and rejected their own Messiah. They had delivered him to Pilate and entreated that he might be slain. They had desired Barabbas to be let go and the Son of God to be crucified. But in the day when they were pricked to the heart by Peter's preaching, they fled to the gate for pardon, and at once the gate flew open and they were saved. The jailer at Philippi went up to this gate. He had been a cruel, hard, godless man. He had done all in his power to ill-treat Paul and his companion. He had thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. But when his conscience was aroused by the earthquake and his mind enlightened by Paul's teaching, he fled to the gate for pardon and at once the gate flew open and he was saved. But why need I stop short in Bible examples? Why should I not say that multitudes have gone to the straight gate since the days of the apostles and have entered in by it and been saved? Thousands of all ranks, classes and ages, learned and unlearned, rich and poor, old and young, have tried the gate and found it ready to open, have gone through it and found peace to their souls. Yes, Thousands of persons, yet living, have made proof of the gate and found it the way to real happiness. Noblemen and commoners, merchants and bankers, soldiers and sailors, farmers and tradesmen, laborers and workmen, are still upon earth who have found the straight gate to be a way of pleasantness and a path of peace. They have not brought up an evil report of the country inside. They have found Christ's yoke to be easy and his burden to be light. 
Their only regret has been that so few enter in and that they themselves did not enter in before. This is the gate which I want everyone to enter into whose hand this paper may fall. I want you not merely to go to church or chapel, but to go with heart and soul to the gate of life. I want you not merely to believe there is such a gate and to think it a good thing, but to enter by faith and be saved. Think what a privilege it is to have a gate at all. The angels who kept not their first estate fell never to rise again. To them there was no door of escape opened. The heathen never heard of any way to eternal life. What would not many a black man and many a red man give if he only heard one plain sermon about Christ? The Jews in Old Testament times only saw the gate dimly and far away. The way into the holiest was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Hebrews 9 verse 8 You have the gate set plainly before you. You have Christ and full salvation offered to you without money and without price. You never need be at a loss which way to turn. Oh, considered what a mercy this is. Beware that you do not despise the gate and perish in unbelief. Better a thousand times not to know of the gate than to know of it and yet tarry outside. How indeed will you escape if you neglect so great salvation? Think what a thankful man you ought to be if you have really gone in at the straight gate. To be a pardoned, forgiven, justified soul, to be ready for sickness, death, judgment, and eternity, to be ever provided for in both worlds, surely this is matter for daily praise. Two Christians ought to be more full of thanksgiving than they are. I fear that few sufficiently remember what they were by nature and what debtors they are to grace. A heathen remarked that singing hymns of praise was one special mark of the early Christians. Well, it would be for Christians in the present day if they knew more of this frame of mind. It is no mark of a healthy state of soul when there is much complaining and little praise. It is an amazing mercy that there is any gate of salvation at all. But it is a still greater mercy when we are taught to enter in by it and be saved. 2. In the second place, here is a plain command. Jesus says to us, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. There is often much to be learned in a single word of Scripture. The words of our Lord Jesus in particular are always full of matter for thought. Here is a word which is a striking example of what I mean. Let us see what the great teacher would have us gather out of the word strive. 
Strive teaches that a man must use means diligently if he would have his soul saved. There are means which God has appointed to help man in his endeavors to approach him. There are ways in which a man must walk if he desires to be found of Christ. Public worship, reading the Bible, hearing the gospel preached, these are the kind of things to which I refer. They lie, as it were, in the middle between man and God. Doubtless, no one can change his own heart or wipe away one of his sins or make himself in the least degree acceptable to God. But I do say that if man could do nothing but sit still, Christ would never have said, Strive. Strive teaches that man is a free agent and will be dealt with by God as a responsible being. The Lord Jesus does not bid us to wait and wish and feel and hope and desire. He says, Strive. I call that miserable religion which teaches people to be content with saying we can do nothing of ourselves and makes them continue in sin. It is as bad as teaching people that it is not their fault if they are not converted and that God only is to blame if they are not saved. I find no such theology in the New Testament. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.